0: If you would turn with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 27 and chapter 28 is where we will be today. Matthew chapter 27 and chapter 28. If you don't know where Matthew is, it's the first book of the New Testament. It's about halfway through the Bible, or two-thirds of the way through the Bible there at the beginning of all those books named after people you recognize. It's after the ones named after people you don't recognize. people like Malachi and Zachariah and all those weird names. This is where you get into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those normal sensible names. It's the first one of those books there. Matthew chapter 27 and chapter 28 is where we will be. The story I'd like to tell you today begins. It is Friday. It is the day of preparation. A day when everything is made ready for the Sabbath. All over Jerusalem, fires are being kindled, lights, lamps are being lit with the light, with the fire that would warm the hearths and light the homes of the citizens for the next 24 hours. Wives and mothers are busy preparing meals, husbands and fathers are wrapping up a week of work so that the family can keep the Lord's day, honor it, and keep it holy. Yet this was not just any Friday. This was not just any preparation day. Matthew tells us it was the day of preparation. The day. The Sabbath they were preparing for was not just the weekly Sabbath that came around every seven days. Things were being made ready for a special Sabbath. The Sabbath of Passover week. That's what they were preparing for, kids. They were getting ready for Sabbath of Passover week. Passover was Israel's highest and holiest feast. A yearly reminder of the way God rescued them from slavery in Egypt and brought them out to freedom. The meal that was being prepared that preparation day was the Passover meal. Yet this particular Preparation Day was even more significant than that because this Preparation Day was the Friday we have come to know as Good Friday. Good Friday, the day on which Jesus Christ would be crucified. With The first light of Friday's dawn, the Sanhedrin, the, the council of 70 elders that oversaw life in Jerusalem, The Sanhedrin summoned Jesus out of the pit-like dungeon in which they would kept Him overnight after His Thursday night arrest. They bundled Him off to appear before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, placed on trial. By 9 o'clock in the morning that Friday, Jesus would be nailed to the cross. By noon, darkness would fall across the land. By 3 o'clock p.m., Jesus would cry out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Lema sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And with that, Matthew says, Jesus breathed His last. Now, I don't intend to draw your attention in particular to those events this morning. Those details have all been recounted and remembered during our worship on Monday, Thursday and Good Friday by the time the story I want to focus on today happens, all those other things, all those other events have taken place. I'd actually like you to notice the final sentences of Matthew's accounts of those events. In Matthew chapter 27, verses 55 and 56. 55 and 56. This is after the report of the earthquake that shook Jerusalem. This is after the report of the the tearing of the temple curtain from top to bottom. This is after the centurion who stood guard over Jesus' crucifixion, watching everything that happened, said, surely this was the Son of God. This is after all of that. After all of that, Matthew draws our attention to some faces in the crowd there that day. Familiar faces. Some women standing in the crowd watching. Standing at the edge of the the boundary of the barrier the Roman soldiers patrolled to keep everyone away from the crucifixion site are three women in particular. Women women who've been traveling with Jesus have been caring for the needs of Him and His disciples as as they journey from place to place. Among them, Matthew says, is Mary Magdalene. Mary from the town of Magdala. Another face we recognize in that crowd is another woman named Mary. This Mary is the mother of of Joseph and of James the Lesser. You say, who in the world is James the Lesser and how awful would it be to grow up with that kind of nickname? That wasn't his nickname as a kid. The reason we call him James the Lesser is because he was the other James among Jesus' 12 disciples. Uh, Not James, the brother of John. This is the other James. The lesser James. I'm sorry, that's just what they call him. His mother Mary is standing there in that crowd. There's also another woman we recognize as the mother of the other James and his brother John. These three women are standing and watching as as they execute Jesus, bearing witness to everything that's happened. All the apostles have fled. Yet these women remain all the way through to the end. Remember them. It is, as I said, Friday. It is the day of preparation. Not just preparation for the Sabbath, but preparation for the Sabbath of Passover week. Sabbath is quickly approaching. Normally, bodies executed on Roman crosses would be left there to hang so that the scavenger birds could come and scavenge from the corpses and everyone passing by would see this visible warning about what happens when you cross the might of Rome. Yet Passover is coming, and in particular the Sabbath of Passover is coming. The people of Jerusalem want these bodies taken down from the crosses, lest they defile the land on this holy day. Now normally when a body wasn't left on a cross, the bodies of criminals executed outside of Jerusalem in from Jerusalem, were instead taken to the valley of Hinnom, a place in Aramaic known as Gehenna. And there those bodies were burned in fire. And we have to wonder if that's the ignominious end of, of the body of Jesus. But Matthew tells us that a different Joseph, this one is Joseph of Arimathea, Arimathea is a small Judean village not far from Jerusalem. Joseph was born there, but he did not stay there. Eventually, he moved to Jerusalem. He was a wealthy man, and because of his wealth, he was an influential man. He was an influential citizen of the Jewish capital. Matthew leaves out this detail, but Mark tells us that Joseph was so influential, he was a member of the Sanhedrin a member of that 70-person council that ruled Jerusalem. The very same Sanhedrin that not too long ago had called for Jesus' death. Yet Luke tells us that while Joseph was on that council, those actions were taken despite his objections. Joseph is a believer in Jesus, yet a believer in secret. Joseph of Arimathea takes the initiative to approach Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. Ask Pilate for permission to to take Jesus down from the cross and, and see Him buried. Pilate agrees, gives his permission, and Joseph heads out of Jerusalem to the place of the skull. And there presumably, Matthew doesn't tell us, but presumably with the help of some servants or some friends, Joseph takes down the lifeless body of his rabbi from that cross he wraps it in clean linen, and he takes it to his own new tomb. Now to get this picture in our mind, we have to think differently from what we're used to. In our time, in our culture, when someone is buried, they're normally buried in a grave. And by a grave, we mean a hole that's dug deep into the rich soil, into which a coffin is placed and a vault is placed down over it and the dirt is filled in and And that person is laid in their final repose, left at a spot normally marked with a stone and some dates. In Joseph's Jerusalem, things were different. People weren't buried in holes dug in the soil. Instead, they were placed in tombs, caves carved into the rocky faces of the mountainous hills surrounding Jerusalem. And and these graves, these tombs, rather than being the final resting place of a single coffin, the, these caves normally had several niches in them, shelves cut into the stone walls of the cave where different bodies could be placed. And when someone died, they wrapped them in linen cloth and they took them to a grave and they set them on one of those shelves and left the body there to decay. Then later on, probably after about a year or so, when all that would remain was the bones, the family would return to the grave and they'd gather up the few bones that remained of their deceased loved one and they'd pack them away in a stone box and store it in a in a back alcove in an out-of-the-way place along with other boxes of bones of others that had passed. That way, that shelf, that niche, that burial spot could be used for other family members when they passed away. Kind of like our modern mausoleums. Joseph's tomb, however, we're told, was a new tomb. It was recently carved. There were no boxes of bones stored away in some back corner. There were no bodies decomposing on shelves around the walls. That shouldn't surprise us since we know that Joseph's family was from Arimathea. It's no wonder that there was no one buried in his Jerusalem too. Surely his family's bodies, their bones doubtless were in a, in a cave somewhere outside of Arimathea. Joseph's grave was as yet unused. Seems odd to me. Out of all the details that Matthew could relate, why stick in that fact? That this tomb had never been used. Biblically, it demonstrates that these events fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 53 verse 9. Where Isaiah says that God's suffering servant will be laid to rest in a rich man's grave. Jesus certainly was. Yet Matthew, who throughout the rest of his gospel loves to point out when prophecy is fulfilled. Every time you turn around, Matthew is saying this took place to fulfill what was written. And he quotes some obscure prophecy from the Old Testament. Yet here, Matthew makes no mention of the Isaiah passage. Makes me wonder if perhaps Matthew didn't stick that detail in for a far more practical reason. It's almost as if Matthew knows that one day someone might be tempted to say this resurrection thing is all a mistake. It's all a misunderstanding. Maybe Matthew knew that one day someone might be tempted to say, well, they just didn't remember which shelf they put Jesus on. And when the disciples came back to the grave, they they went to the shelf where they thought they'd stuck Jesus and found the remains of, of whatever body had laid there last after the family had collected the bones and carried them off to an alcove meanwhile, Jesus' body was somewhere else in the cave, around a corner, out of sight. Maybe it was all just a mistake. That's not passable, Matthew says. This was a new tomb. There were no other bodies in it. You could not mistake its emptiness. Up until that point, no one except Jesus had ever been laid to rest in this grave. And upon His resurrection, the tomb was verifiably empty. There's another detail that Matthew includes here. He's about to shift the scene back to Jerusalem. But before He goes back to the city, He wants us to notice. You see it there in verse 61. He wants us to notice that as Joseph and his helpers are rolling the large stone back into place, as their sealing shut the grave, with Jesus' body inside, we see again some familiar faces watching what's going on. Verse 61, Matthew says, Mary of Magdala is there, as well as the other Mary. You think Matthew wanted us to know that the two Marys didn't get lost come Sunday morning? They weren't following somebody else's direction when they went out to the tomb to to seek the, the place where Jesus lay. They were there. They saw His body laid to rest. They saw the tomb sealed. They knew exactly what grave Jesus was in. There was no mistake come Sunday morning. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem... We're told that the the religious authorities of the cities are concerned when they hear that Pilate has released Jesus' body to Joseph of Arimathea. They spent what was likely a sleepless night worrying about what would happen if somebody came in the night and tried to steal the body of Jesus. That they might claim He was alive. So first thing the next morning, on the Sabbath day, they again gather outside Pilate's house. On the Sabbath day, they gather outside Pilate's house to make another request of the governor. Seal the tomb, they ask. Post a guard at least for three days to make sure no disciples come and steal the body. It's better safe than sorry. If they steal his body and claims his alive, that fraud would be worse than the first, they say. Yet it seems like Pilate is done listening to their demands. Set a guard, they ask. Pilate says, you have your own guard. Seal the tomb, they ask. You seal the tomb. You're so worried, you do it. You have the temple guard. Set them to watch. And so the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, do. They send guards to the tomb. They seal the door shut, placing a seal on it and Posting guards to stand watch. And again, you can almost hear Matthew whisper to us Do you think they were mistaken? How many graves do you think out there was sealed? How many graves out there do you think had soldiers standing by? There's no mistaking which grave Jesus is in. So we come to chapter 28. A new day is about to dawn. It's Sunday morning. First day of a new week. The Sabbath restrictions on work and travel are lifted. And we see, Matthew tells us, we see two familiar faces heading out from Jerusalem. Again, Matthew says, it is Mary of Magdala and Mary the mother of James and Joseph. We can follow them in our mind as they head out across the valley to the place where they had watched Jesus be sealed in the grave. They're headed out to see the tomb, doubtless to mourn their rabbi. As they walk, you can almost feel the the silence of sorrow hang heavy over the two women until suddenly the ground beneath their feet begins to shake. There's an earthquake, Matthew says, a severe earthquake shakes the ground. Out of sight, unbeknownst to the women, an angel of the Lord has just descended from heaven, and the earth quakes with the angel's arrival. And it's not just the ground that shakes. Remember those soldiers standing guard? They also fall to the ground in fear. And Matthew uses the same word here. There was a seismos. There was an earthquake. And the guards began to sayo, They began to quake with fear. The two Marys arrive at the tomb. There can be no doubt they're at the right place. They watched where Jesus was buried. The tomb, apart from His body, was empty. There is no other sealed grave. No other guards standing watch. No other grave has an angel seated on the stone outside. The angel looks at the women and he says, Don't be afraid. Verse 5, Don't be afraid. I know that you're looking for the crucified Jesus. He is not here. He is risen just as He said. Come and see the place where He lay. Then go quickly and tell His disciples that He is risen from the dead. And is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you may see him. Now Matthew doesn't spell it out, but surely those two women looked inside that tomb, saw that it was verifiably empty, and finding it empty, they turn they turn to leave to go back to Jerusalem, surely filled with mixed emotions. Matthew says they were filled with fear and joy. And they begin not only to walk, they actually begin running back into Jerusalem to seek out the other disciples. Yet their time at the tomb isn't over yet. As they go, Jesus himself meets them on the way. Hello, he says. Your Bible might say greetings. Oh, literally, the word means rejoice, be glad, <laughs> be happy. It's a customary greeting spoken between familiar friends. In our language, we might just say, hey, how you doing? Words doubtless they've heard Jesus speak countless times. But hearing Jesus' voice, seeing Jesus' face, the women rush towards Jesus and fall at His feet. When Jesus met the two Marys, what did they do? They ran to Jesus and grabbed a hold of His feet. They seized Him, Matthew says. The last time we heard Matthew use that word, it was earlier in the Garden of Gethsemane when the mob came to arrest Jesus. They seized Him and drug Him away to trial. Now Jesus is seized in a wholly different way by these two Marys laying prostrate at His feet. Clutching His legs. Falling at His feet. They worship Him. Eventually, Jesus speaks. It's there in verse 10. Don't be afraid, He tells them. Don't be afraid. Go tell my... You see that word there? Don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers. What would it be like to hear Jesus call you brother? Go go tell my brothers. Tell them to leave for Galilee. They'll see me there. Now please don't overlook those words. Jesus gives these two women a message and sends them to deliver His word to His disciples. This is a wholly different sermon. This has nothing to do with this sermon, but I'm going to stick it in here anyway. Jesus sees these women, gives them a message and tells them to deliver his word to his disciples. Sometimes people ask me why the Church of the Nazarene ordains women to preach. I mean especially since Paul recommends that at least in Corinth and Ephesus women not be allowed to speak in church. This passage is one of those places that demonstrates in my mind that demonstrates in my mind that Paul's instructions were for a particular time a specific place for a specific reason, not a general rule for all generations. Jesus looks at these two women, gives them a message, and sends them to deliver his word to his disciples. If that's not a call to preach, I don't know what is. Why do we ordain women? We're the church of the Nazarene. And if Jesus the Nazarene did it, who are we to second guess his example? So at some point, these two Mary's follow this command. They, they release Jesus' feet and they get up and they go to tell the disciples. But notice this. The most important thing I'd like you to notice this morning is this. Going and telling wasn't their first response to seeing the risen Christ. Leaving and preaching only came later. What was the first thing they did? They fell at Jesus' feet and worshipped. Don't have much time left, but the question I'd like you to consider this morning is, is of everything the two women could have done, why, why did they fall at Jesus' feet? I suppose it could be argued that falling to the ground in fear is a natural, instinctual response. As such, it wasn't necessarily something that they decided to do. It was just a natural reaction. Look at the guards laying, trembling on the ground. Look at the mob come to rest Jesus falling over in fear when Jesus says, I am people. We're falling down in fear all the time. But I think there's something more going on in this passage. I don't think this is just mere instinct. A, a simple reaction After all, falling at Jesus' feet isn't the first thing the women did, is it? Look at verse 10 again. Look at verse 10. When Jesus greeted them, it wasn't fall down on the ground. They came to Him and fell at His feet. Their first movement wasn't towards the ground. Their first movement was towards Jesus. And only when they came to Him did they fall at His feet. This wasn't a reaction. This was a decision they saw jesus and knew they wanted to be at jesus's feet so why here's the hypothesis i'd like to explore both this morning and in the coming weeks my hypothesis is this the two marys responded the way they did when they saw jesus that morning because they understood that at the feet of jesus they could find what they needed most. Can I say that again? The two Marys responded to Jesus the way they did because they understood that at Jesus' feet, they could find what they needed most. These women had, after all, been following Jesus around. They'd been traveling with Jesus and the disciples. Likely, they'd witnessed other people who found what they were looking for at the feet of Jesus. Kids, I think this is this is a yes. This is the last question. Almost done. Last question. There, Uh, you got to get one of these down. Don't want to spoil any of the future sermons. We're actually going to be looking at each of these stories in coming weeks. But consider what the two Marys may have witnessed while traveling with Jesus. Maybe they were there when Jairus found hope at the feet of Jesus. Maybe they were there watching when a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years found healing at the feet of Jesus. Maybe they were there outside the graves in the region of the Gerasenes when a man who had been possessed by a legion of demons found restoration at the feet of Jesus. Maybe they were there when a Canaanite woman found the kind of acceptance that can see past cultural and religious differences at the feet of Jesus. Maybe they were there when another Mary, Martha's sister, found a place of inclusion at the feet of Jesus. Surely at some point they had seen others come to Jesus and find what they were looking for at His feet. Hope and healing, restoration and acceptance, inclusion. And so on that Sunday morning, the first Sunday of the resurrection, when Mary saw Jesus, when the two Marys saw Jesus, They followed the example of so many others that had gone before them. They came to Jesus and fell at His feet. Maybe we can too. Hope, healing, restoration, acceptance, inclusion, all of these are available at the feet of Jesus. Now maybe you're thinking, if I came to His feet, how do I know? that He'd accept me. You don't know how far I've gone. You don't know the things that I've done. Well, there's something else at the feet of Jesus. First and foremost, there's forgiveness at the feet of Jesus. Just ask the paralyzed man whose four friends carried him to Jesus and placed him at Jesus' feet. Seeing the paralyzed man, Jesus' first response wasn't to To heal him, his first response was forgiveness. There is forgiveness at the feet of Jesus. The Bible says all we need to do to receive this forgiveness is, is to pray the prayer so many others in Scripture prayed Lord Jesus Christ, Son of David, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. God's Word tells us that if we'll confess our sin, He is faithful and He is just and He'll forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Maybe you find yourself hungering for forgiveness at Jesus' feet this morning. That's the case. It's there. All you need to do is come. Every Sunday we... Wrap up our message praying a prayer of confession, a prayer of repentance. If you find yourself in need of forgiveness today, I'd invite you to pray right along with us this morning. It's as simple as Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Would you pray with me right now? Heavenly Father, we are sinners every single one of us has sinned all of us like sheep have gone astray each of us have wandered off to our own way all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god father we confess that reality before you right now we confess heavenly father that we have failed you we have failed you to lo- we have failed to to love You with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have failed to love our neighbor as ourselves. We've sinned. We've sinned in our actions. By leaving undone things we know that You've commanded us to do, and by doing things we know that You have forbidden. We've sinned. We've sinned in our words. You tell us our words should be full of grace and helpful for building others up, yet we speak words of cursing and bitterness We tear down and destroy with our words. We've sinned. We've sinned in our attitudes. You tell us that we should have the same attitude that Jesus had. Jesus, who was 100% equal with you, but did not cling to that equality, did not grasp a hold to His rights and privileges as God, but instead emptied himself, humbled himself, became a servant, obedient, even unto death on a cross. You point us to Jesus and say our attitudes should mirror His, yet rather than humble obedience, oftentimes our attitudes are attitudes of prideful arrogance. Father, we have sinned. Would You forgive us? Lord Jesus Christ, Son of David, have mercy on us sinners. For the sake of Your holy name, and for the sake of Your Son Jesus Christ who died for us, would You forgive us our sin? We pray this bearing in mind that promise we mentioned earlier. Your Word tells us if we'll confess our sin, You are faithful and You are fair. Not only will You forgive us our sin, You will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Father, would You keep Your Word right now? Even in this moment as we pray, would You forgive us? Having forgiven us, would You change us? By Your Spirit, make us more like Jesus. We ask these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.